I want to point out first that one of the things that romance is doing is that it is centering women's sexuality from a female gaze. And that is incredibly deeply important because most other portrayals of women's sexuality, of female bodies, of anything erotic or prurient is constructed through male gaze. It's what turns on a dude. And for romance, these are books written by women, about women, and for women. Also, if you look at the publishing industry, they're largely produced by women. This is a story about female sexuality through a female gaze, through a female character, placing her at the center. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today I explore a curious corner of popular culture that captured my attention many years ago when I was researching a series of articles about fandom in America. For this project, I went on a Star Trek-themed fan cruise to Bermuda, which I wrote about for World Hum. You can find a link to that article in the show notes. I also went to a porn convention in New Jersey, an insane clown posse concert in Philadelphia, and eight years ago in Columbus, Ohio, I went to this event. I'm going to show you ladies this list. You're going to choose your hottest, baddest costume ever for who, in your mind, is your the picture, the epitome of a romance novel hero. And then you're going to be judged by Randy, Paula, and Simon. And we all know Simon can be cranky. Okay, so pick wisely, girls. That's an audio recording from a fashion show competition at the RT Book Lovers Convention, which is the largest annual gathering of romance novel fans in America. Now, to prepare for this event, I read 15 pulpy romance novels written around that time. These novels spanned a remarkable array of subgenres, including Western romance, pirate romance, science fiction romance, Navy SEAL romance, Scottish vampire romance, paranormal romance, post-apocalyptic shapeshifter romance, bondage sadomasochistic erotic romance, and many others. Now, despite the difference in genre, the plots of all these books were quite similar. That is, an every woman heroine meets a buff alpha male hero. Desire and misunderstanding get hopelessly entangled. The alpha hero eventually learns to trust and become more emotionally vulnerable. And in the end, true love ensues. Along the way, the plots of these books feature a lot of sex, and almost without exception, it is orgasmically good sex. I'll share a few passages here, though since these scenes were written by women for women, I'll have a woman read them. Then he was inside her. She clung to him. He was trembling, his kisses intense as he thrust into her. She felt a long ripple of passion surge through her, felt his body respond in kind. And the heat that had been building between them mushroomed into a fireball. Linnea Sinclair, Finders Keepers, page 130. That's my friend Carla reading a passage from a science fiction romance novel. Note that the passage is erotic without necessarily being pornographic, as even while it emphasizes sexual pleasure, it focuses on the primal bond between the man and the woman, something that is even more explicit in this passage from a paranormal romance novel. Never has she felt so full, so stretched, so taken. Each powerful stroke marked her changed her, pushed her closer to an ecstasy unlike she'd ever known. Suddenly everything converged in a flash of blinding white light as they leapt off the cliff together. Merged. Unity. R.G. Alexander, Regina the Sun, page 70. Now, I don't want to belabor the role sex plays in romance novels, but it's not something you want to overlook if you want to understand how these books work. My first exposure to romance novels was watching my girl classmates read them in junior and senior high, and as often as not, these girls would dog-ear the page numbers of the best sex scenes and trade the books among themselves. I read some of these sex scenes, and they were pretty explicit, a trait that hasn't changed much over the years. Just like that. He felt the power of her intense release, 
and if he hadn't felt it, he sure as hell would have heard it. It was the most wonderful, beautiful sensation he'd ever experienced in his life. She clung to him desperately as her body shook with wave upon wave of pleasure as she cried his name again and again and again. Suzanne Brockman, Unsung Hero, page 259. Now, my guide at the RT Book Lovers Convention eight years ago was a romance novelist named Crystal Jordan, whom I'd met at an academic conference the year before. Crystal wrote mostly paranormal erotic romance at the time, and in her book Untamed, which Crystal mailed me before the conference began, the heroine, a lynx shapeshifter named Delilah, experiences detailed mind-blowing orgasms on page 22, 28, 31, 42, 48, 59, 61, 70, 77, 94, 125, 141, 146, 169, and 172 of the book. I don't point this out to suggest that Crystal or anyone else at the conference was necessarily fixated on sex. It's just that sex, along with tales of struggle and emotional connection and ultimately love and happiness, are what readers tend to look for in romance novels. And man, compared to other genres of literature, these books sell like crazy. Literally hundreds of romance novels debut every day, and their sales are in the billions of dollars each year. As a case in point, I've been pretty successful as a travel author, mainly because of my first book, Vagabonding. But compared to romance authors, I would be a mid-list author at best, in part because some romance writers publish several books a year. For example, Crystal Jordan was remarkably prolific and constantly on the lookout for new topics, and after hanging out with me for a few days, she decided to write a paranormal romance with the travel writer as the hero. Roughly one year later, her book Prowl the Night hit bookstores. It featured a shape-shifting panther travel writer named Rafe, and in what might qualify as a delightful bucket list item it never occurred to me to wish for in my earlier life, I make a cameo as myself towards the end of Prowl the Night. I appear on pages 250 through 252, where I'm depicted as one of Rafe's human friends alongside, and this is no joke, adventure writer Tim Cahill, who you might recall was featured on episode 19 of this podcast. A pretty rare feat for a couple of travel writers. Romance novel cameos aside, my time at the RT Book Lovers Convention really made me appreciate and respect the genres in ways I hadn't expected. And while I never ended up becoming a romance novel fan in terms of my reading habits, I left the conference with a sharpened appreciation for romance fiction and the women who read it. Now, I've entitled this episode How Romance Novels Reveal the Secret History of Life in America, which sounds like kind of an exaggeration, and maybe it is. But in a sense, romance fiction is, if not great literature, a fascinating window into the popular workaday fantasies of women, a worldview that isn't taken all that seriously, even as romance novels generate billions of dollars in sales each year. This phenomenon has actually given rise to reading technology like ebooks, and in some ways people don't realize it has come to mirror the hyper-specialized marketing that defines so much of 21st century commerce. Now to help me and you as listeners appreciate this, my guest this week is Sarah Wendell, who I first met at the conference all those years ago. She runs an incredibly popular romance novel review blog called Smart Bitches Trashy Books. And what impressed me about Sarah as a critic was her ability to love and champion romance novels in a fiercely intelligent and self-consciously feminist way, all while not taking herself or the genre too seriously, because really the genre can be pretty hilarious sometimes. Sarah wrote a laugh-out-loud 101-level primer on romance fiction called Beyond Heaving Bosoms, and I've recommended this book again and again to people who want to better appreciate the idiosyncrasies of how romance novels work. Over the course of our conversation, Sarah and I cover a multitude of topics, including why early romance novels were so goddamn rapey, why the books invariably have happy endings, how the hero and heroine attraction works, and how these books reflect the ways in which American society is changing in fairly complex ways. An alternate title for this episode might be Everything You Wanted to Know About Romance Novels But Were Afraid To or Didn't Know How to Ask. Here's Sarah. On your website, uh, which is Smart Bitches Trashy Books, when, when was that website uh, founded? January of 2005, so we are 13 years old. Wow. And, and on your website, you're called Smart Bitch Sarah, the media pundit of Man Titty. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and I needed a way to describe what I do. I talk about romance a lot in lots of different places. So that's what it is. Well, it's, it's a very memorable brand, and I do want to get to the definition of man titty in a second. Um, but it almost feels like the fact that your website goes back to 2005, it sort of corresponded with a cultural shift when um, readers of romance or even watchers of sci-fi on television were so suddenly communicating with each other online and having a conversation that would not have made it into major media. And one fun thing about your website is that, that it's obviously, are you okay? Are you okay? I beg your pardon. Sorry about that. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> it sounds like a suitcase fell down or something. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> I have, I was trying to move things away from my sound box because my cat loves it when I have the microphone out because the microphone sits in a box full of foam and the cat is obsessed with the box full of foam. And I was trying to clear the desk to make sure if the cat decided that now was the time, it wouldn't make any noise. But of course I made noise. So I'm sorry about that. <laughs> no, no worries to my listeners. This is, this is the excitement that comes with podcasting via Skype. Yes, it's very true. <laughs> uh, anyhow, before you were sort of cat proofing the interview situation, <laughs> uh, um, one thing is that this, there's, there's a, a, a very much a cheekiness to your blog and your website by its very name, yet it set out to take the romance genre seriously. So what what inspired you to to create this conversation around romance literature all of 13 years ago? Well, the site was co-founded um, by myself and a woman named Candy Tan. And Candy found me because she was looking for recipes to make cat food. So basically the reason Smart Bitches exists is because Candy had a cat who was allergic to most food and I did not have children at that time so I had time to make my own cat food and that's how she found me. She started leaving comments on my blog. We would correspond, correspond periodically and at some point in an email conversation, uh, we ended up talking about how we were both English majors. We both loved romance novels. It was something we never talked to other people we didn't know about because we always got insulted or could see people, as Candy put it, revising downward their opinion of our intelligence the minute we started talking about romance fiction. Yet we loved it. I don't remember which one of us had the idea or which one of us came up with the name, but uh, Candy bought the, bought the URL and I or no, I bought the URL and did the installation of the software. She built the first design and we launched the site January 31st, 2005 with a review of a Sharon Shin book and a review of um, one of the troubleshooters by Suzanne Brockman. Okay. And we didn't advertise. We just sort of were like, here's a website. Hope somebody reads it. And I really thought that like nothing would come of it. I was like me and Candy and my husband and her friend were like the only people who would read this site. And I was really, really wrong about that. I think a lot of my listeners don't know anything about romance books. Um, and one thing that struck me going to the convention back in 2010 is just how fascinating it was. And your book, uh, Beyond Heaving Bosoms, articulated it in such a hilarious way that I want to walk through this understanding. So there's, there's, an, ex <laughs> there's an extent to which I'm, I really want to give my, my listeners a 101 level of understanding because I'm guessing a pretty big percentage of them are not familiar with it at all. So let's start with covers because I think covers is the first impression, book covers that is, of that many people have of the romance genre. And, and that's changing. Oh, yes. That's changing. Um, but I think from the get-go, there's something very campy and over-the-top and something, and this is a topic that you are not afraid to talk about uh, no. with, with great mirth. So, t so tell me a little <laughs> bit about, um, actually, one, actually, this is where Man Titty can come in. So uh, talk a little <laughs> bit about, about the covers and, and uh, that, that sometimes we've seen in stores but maybe don't understand what's going on. <laughs> it is never too early in an interview to bring in the man titty. All right. So man titty comes from what most people who are not familiar with the romance genre think of when you hear romance novel. Uh, usually that's Fabio or another very, very muscular dude, strangely with his shirt wide open, but still tucked in. Maybe there's nipple, maybe there's two, maybe there's just the hint of nipple, but there's a whole lot of man chest. And this is particularly true on historical novels published in the 80s and early 90s. 
uh, we will never run out of man titty to look at in the archives of romance novel covers. There is just so much of it. Now, the reason why that exists is very funny to me. Um, I never understood why this, what we call the clinch cover, uh, which is, as you might imagine, two people in a clinch looking like they are either really, really into each other or have had some really, really bad food and have some <laughs> gastrointestinal issues that they're trying to hide from their you know, partner. And there's often a, a big floaty dress. It looks as if the wind may be coming from multiple directions. Uh, in some of my favorite examples, they're about to get busy in really strange locations. There's one cover I adore where they're actually kneeling on jagged rocks and they look just completely excited about the fact that they're pretty much about to get down on rock-sized knife blades. Like they're very sharp rocks. And then there's this massive wave coming up behind them so they're about to get drenched and it's just the greatest cover. All of these images were a very, very fast shorthand to this is a romance. And the thing is, I just did an interview with a cover designer who works for um, Penguin Random House named Regina Flath. And she was talking to me about all the things that a book cover has to do. It has to communicate genre. It has to communicate time period. And it has to communicate, it has to signal all of these things to the reader in just a split second. So that if I'm across the room and I see an image, I'm going to know, oh, that probably is science fiction. Oh, that's definitely a thriller. There's a woman running away, running away from me in a two-color image, and she's on a dock. That's a thriller. Like I, I, you can you, you can see all these shorthand images when you put all of the books on one shelf. Romance has its own shorthand. The thing that most people are familiar with is the muscular dude with his shirt open, the man titty cover with the clinch. These came about because way, 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 way back in the day. Um, and I learned this from an editor at Kensington named Kate Duffy, who passed away a couple of years ago. And she was she would tell me that back back in the day, there were book buyers. And, and I don't mean like people who go shopping for books, but the people who go to buy the books to stock in different stores. There were book buyers for just about every city, every major city, and then every major chain. So you would have the book buyer for the Austin Kroger grocery stores, and you would have to meet with the book buyers for this bookstore that was in the Southwest. And you would have the bookstore or the book buyers for the grocery store chains in New England. And you would meet with all these buyers. Most of these guys were men. And that was what they all decided would look like. That's the one that looks like romance. That cover is the one that I want to put in my store. And that power of the book buyer still exists today. There aren't as many book buyers. I think there may be like six. But major retailers still have a lot of power and control over what goes on the cover of a book based on what they think will sell. Like stick a dog on it and they are like, oh, yes, that romance is going to sell. So you'll see a lot of contemporary romances with trees Docks, Adirondack chairs, and dogs, because that's what a book buyer says. Oh, hey, oh yeah, you stick a dog on that cover, I'm gonna buy five thousand copies of it. Going back in history, the same thing is true. Book buyers would indicate what what said romance to them, and that was what was put in the store, because that was what was put in front of readers. Readers learn to recognize that's the signal of the kind of book that I want. There's there's an interesting parallel in travel writing, which is my genre. Um, yes. That if you absolutely. look at like pictures of books of Africa, there's like three different kinds of covers. That's it. <laughs> it's it's like a sun setting over uh, the Serengeti with animals silhouetted and and big broad beautiful trees. Um, yep. And so so basically, you're saying that there's like basically these guys in these Kroger buyers are like dudes with slide rules and aprons thinking, oh, okay, well, this is what the lady folk want to see. I mean, yep. is that what it came down to? Pretty much. This is from what I was told. This is all, you know, uh, oral history of the history of romance that, yeah, they would say, oh, that's that's the romance. That's what I want to put in my store. That's what's going to sell because who's in grocery stores? Ladies. And what you want is to put your book in front of someone who doesn't have a whole lot of time to make a decision about the book they're going to buy. Maybe they're in the store. If you think about when you move through a grocery store, the book section is often at the end. It's, you know, over near the cold stuff. So you've gone through most of the store. If you have somebody in the in the shopping cart who is young and they are they have so tired of this experience. If you're going to pick out a book for yourself, 
in the grocery store, you don't have a lot of time to make a decision. You don't have time to sit and browse. You want a very quick signal. This is the book that you want. And romance has a very, very prominent sense of branding. So on one hand, you have this ridiculous stereotype. And it's completely preposterous. There are some covers that I look at now and I still laugh. In fact, on my desk, I have a limited edition Barbie collectible in the box because you can't take collectibles out of the box. And it is Jude Devereaux's The Raider with Ken and Barbie. And they're basically recreating the cover of Jude Devereaux's book, The Raider, which, by the way, is a classic romance, is completely over the top, and I adore it. Even though these two Barbies really embody a lot of the things that are ridiculous about romance covers. His shirt doesn't even have buttons, but it's totally tucked into his pants. <laughs> I adore it because it's, you know, it's part of our history. It's it's part of how romance looks and it's the signal that we were taught. And here comes the cat right on cue. I'm that, that a professional sounds... podcaster. I have a cat. Um, with, with gourmet, uh, cat food, apparently. I mean, it sounds like the Barbie doll of the, of the, um, romance novel cover is sort of like the postmodern feminist turducken, you know, it's like, it's like one, (laughs) it's one stereotype inside of another. It's like, there's something very pure about, uh, that this Barbie, uh, marketing. Um, yes, yes, <laughs> is very much the turducken of stereotypes and gender stereotypes too. Some somewhere somebody is is writing a PhD thesis about this. I'm sure. Um, bless them. Bless them. I have two questions based on what I knew about man titty and and book covers eight years ago. Um, there were two things that struck me about book covers that I saw at the RT Con in 2010. One is yes. that for whatever reason, it was an era of cropping men with no heads. Yes, oh, that still happens. Okay. I used to think of a support group of all of the male model heads that got cut off, like all the heads are in a little circle of chairs going, I look so good, I worked out for days, I got this book cover, cut my head right off. Yeah, I, I wonder if it's just, it accentuates the man titty more. Again, and for our listeners, man titty is just the, the bared chest, right, of the, the man. extremely muscular, often um, preposterously waxed and strangely tanned man chest. Yes, that is definitely what man titty is. The other thing about cutting off the face is that um, it, it allows the reader to compose their own image of what the person looks like. So it doesn't have to look like the model. And readers will tell you, uh, there are some romance readers who get very irate that the cover does the the model on the cover doesn't match the description in the book, especially if the heroine's hair is like a completely wrong color, or the description of the heroine is someone who is plump and curvy, and the person on the cover is very very thin. The there's a balance to be made between the signal that you're sending that this is a romance, and then allowing the reader space to fill in what they see as the characters in their own imagination. So that's why they cut the heads off, so they don't show anybody what you look like. Plus, it creates a more compelling image. Like, where'd their head go? <laughs> uh, I can see that. You can almost imagine the, the, the gentleman of your choice, or maybe the, uh, again, the, the actual described character inside the book instead of, like, the generically Fabio-looking guy who is on the cover. Um, exactly. An, another big thing that was discussed in 2010, which is sort of at odds with what we just talked about, but it was the idea that in romance novel cover art the ones where the head was not cut off, is that the mullet, I cut off my mullet in 1991. But as, as of 2010, like mullets like are somehow, like even hockey players don't have as many mullets as romance novel covers. Has that gone away finally? Or is, is the mullet still uh, persisting eight years later? <laughs> it, uh, it, it never fully dies, the mullet. Not in real life. Not on covers. You can still find a few mullets here and there, um, though it can be a bit of a rare event to locate the full glorious mullet that used to appear on the cover. There are still some, but they're more, they're few and far between, which is probably a good thing for everyone. That, that might even be like the, the geological sediment line of a certain era of romance. <laughs> that, yes. That the mullet <laughs> signifies certain things, you know, the, the, the missing man head um, signifies yes. other things. Um, well, I want to, again, just to sort of orient my readers, uh, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's something, the, the plots of uh, romance books have a sort of similarity to them. And so I want to go through, through some of the jargon often, which is delightful from, from your book. But basically, romance novels, and correct me if I'm wrong, you can fine tune this observation, but it's sort of about this 
sort of attraction that's mixed with separation and conflict. And over the course of the book, a sort of plucky heroine um, falls for a rather dominant but aloof, usually alpha male. There's many complications, and then eventually it ends in devotion. Uh, and is that a fair assessment of like the, the overarching plot line of, of romance novels? The heroines aren't always plucky and there isn't always a dark moment that affects them externally. But yes, essentially a romance is a courtship story. And if you think about it, courtship stories are part of the foundation of human storytelling. Either you have two people falling in love against all odds or uniting their their families against all odds, or you have stories of war and subterfuge. And sometimes if you're really lucky, you get them all in one place. But romances are stories of courtship. There is a, a couple, or maybe there's a primary couple and a secondary couple. Maybe it's a polyamorous romance. There's a lot of variety in the genre. But there's a courtship between two people who are going to get together, have obstacles that they have to overcome, and, and the story will end with a happily ever after or an extremely optimistic version of the future for those people. So yeah, they're basically courtship narratives. And that's the first acronym I wanted to throw out, the H-E-A, or Happy yes. Ever After, uh, yes. which when I started to study this, I guess Gone with the Wind isn't really nope. uh, a genre romance. So explain the importance and the role of H-E-A for romance books and you know for romance readers. Well, if I describe the uh, importance of the H-E-A, I think that it lends very easily to the assumption that is often thrown at all romances. Oh, they're all the same. Oh, they're just all the same. You can just substitute the names of the characters and you have another story. Absolutely not true. The thing to realize about genre fiction is that genre has structure. And what you do within that structure is exceptionally creative, brilliant work. There are an astonishing number of current and, as one writer puts it, recovering attorneys who write romance. One, because they always end happily. You know that everything will work out in the end and everything will be okay. That's enormously reassuring. Even if you know the ending, though, you don't know how they're going to get there. And if you think about like a legal document, if you are filing a brief, that brief has to follow a very specific format. You can make whatever argument you want inside that brief. You can argue some completely banana stuff inside that brief, but it has to follow the structural rules or it will not be accepted. Mystery is the same way. You have a crime. Either somebody got killed or something got stolen or both. And depending on the subgenre of mystery, if it's a cozy, it might happen in a bake shop slash pet store slash bookstore, or if it's a more uh, dark or um, angsty thriller, it might happen in a very isolated location with a great deal of peril. The level of entrails depends on the subgenre. But if you're picking up a thriller or a mystery, by the time you get to the end, you want to know who did it or what happened specifically. Right now, there's a great um, popularity of psychological thrillers with very unreliable narrators in the style of Gone Girl who, you know, you don't actually know if the person who's telling you the story or the people that you know in the story are, are even telling you the truth. But you know at the end of the book you're going to find out what happened. And if you don't, you've, you've been cheated. Oddly enough, I discovered through Facebook, of all things, that my best friend from kindergarten is now a PhD in a case Western, and she has just or is about to publish a book called The Elements of Surprise, where she looks at how surprises and th and twists in books, how they work and why they work on a cognitive level. Like, why is it that a book that you know is going to trick you still succeeds in tricking you? And one of the parts of the introduction cites a discussion board about mysteries where a reader said, I love being fooled. I don't like being cheated. I want to be deceived and I want to be fooled, but I do not want to be cheated. And that's really the the summary and the key point of writing a mystery. You, you want to fool the reader. You don't want to cheat them. The same is true for romance. A romance reader enters that book expecting a story of courtship, overcoming obstacles, and a happy ending. It's the structure that is agreed upon when you say this is a romance. Those are the elements that you know in the beginning, in the middle, and the end. Even though you know the ending will be happy, you can get incredibly creative and wonderfully absorbing stories inside that structure. One of the best ways to uh, keep a romance reader content and reading all of your backlist is when you set up 
obstacles and challenges between the two characters that you think there's no way they're going to be able to pull this off. There's no way they're going to be able to be together. There's no way they can be happy within the rules of this universe. And then it happens. And it is a surprise because you didn't think it was possible that it was going to happen. That is the essential promise or agreement of a romance. And Karina Press, which is a division of Harlequin, they actually have the Karina romance promise. We promise this book will end with a happy ending. This is not a book that will end with them breaking up and going their separate ways. Nobody dies at the end. We promise that this will give you the happy ending. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and that, I think that's something that feeds into the to the readership and the and the motivation for reading, which again is something I want to get to a little bit later. But sure, um, in your and actually one thing I, I think that there's sort of this emotional journey, um, and one metaphor that struck me when I first started to strike this is that you know even young men can understand this because if you watch a superhero movie, yeah. Um, it's it's a, it's sort of an emotional vessel vessel also it has different content but the, you sort of know how a superhero movie is going to end but you're yes. there you're there for the ride and so i think it's less foreign to um to um people unfamiliar with the genre than they might think that it's it's an emotional yes. journey that just has different um you know different characters and different different plot points now one thing you mention in the book is the big miss big miss stands for big misunderstanding In other words, if these two people would just talk to each other and have a grown-up adult conversation, they wouldn't be having this conversation. They wouldn't be having this problem in the first place. Um, The big miss is, in a lot of ways, contrived conflict. And it used to be very common, um, especially in historicals, because when you set a romance in a historical period where there are many, many boundaries that society places between a hero and a heroine being by themselves on chaperone, for example, or being alone together in another location, then it may become very easy to misinterpret the actions of another person. Now, the big miss is not always a bad thing. Sometimes it's incredibly contrived and you're like, oh my God, a three minute conversation could have fixed like the last hundred pages. That's an example, I think, of feeling cheated. But if you think about it, Pride and Prejudice has a whole bunch of big misunderstandings. There's, there's a misunderstanding between Bingley and um, Jane, where Bingley and Darcy believe that Jane isn't really that into him. And meanwhile, Jane, who is very shy, is completely over the moon over this guy. So he like leaves abruptly and doesn't offer her any explanation and doesn't try to talk to her when she's in town. That's one example of a misunderstanding that works really well because there's boundaries to their comprehension of one another. So sometimes the misunderstanding makes a lot of sense. Often though, it is a contrived way to extend conflict that is really frustrating to spend too much time with. And, and is this, is the, is the acronym TSTL, is, is that yours? <laughs> Ah, no, that's been in existence for a very long time. TSTL stands for too stupid to live. Uh, That is often a heroine who is too stupid to live. Um, For example, in Gothic romances and Gothic stories, you'll have somebody, you know, running through the dark castle at night, investigating a sound, holding a candle and wearing a nightgown. None of that is a good idea. What are you doing? Uh, too stupid to live also has a, has a more important, um, I want to say, subtext romances began as as you can the, the romances that you would look at and say oh that's a romance novel they started showing up in the market in the late 70s and in the early 80s and they were all novels that had explicit content in terms of sexuality which i'm sure is something you want to talk about romances do often have explicit sexual content at that time it was unacceptable for a woman to own her own agency in terms of her sexuality. Shorthand, she's not allowed to have horny pants. No horny pants. So when you have a too-stupid-to-live heroine in a romance that was published you know, decades ago, what you actually have is someone who, through the limits of the society in which that book was published, could not own their own agency of their own sexuality and acknowledge, whoa, yes, he's hot. I'm interested in him. The too-stupid-to-live heroine what had to have all of this knowledge brought to her by the hero because otherwise that was not a character who would be acceptable to the societal readership of that time. So if you look at romances and look at romance characters, you also get a really interesting sort of anthropology of how sexuality was considered by popular culture in how sexuality was revealed to the heroine. Well, this is uh, actually I might rewind historically a little bit because um, 
Um, and, and I do want to get to the 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 wang of mighty loving and the magic hoo ha. <laughs> but I'm just gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna dangle the wang of mighty loving and the magic hoo ha for my listeners for now. We'll get back to it. Um, but one way, oh, one way, um, like Elmer Leonard uh, had a character who was a romance rival, uh, writer who said that her work was full of rape and adverbs. Um, and there's this reputation um, from early romance, going back to The Flame and the Flower, apparently, which is the early 1970s, um, that it's sort of a rapey genre, that, that somehow there's a lot of creepy sex happening. Um, and I think I read in your book that between 1972 and 1982, some women were sort of analyzing these books, and there was a rape before page 70 in every single book they studied. In your book, you call it old school romance. So tell us a little bit about why there's this sort of creepy se- sexual situation in the revival romance of the 1970s and 80s. Well, old school romance shares a number of concepts in common. And unfortunately, one of them often is sexual knowledge brought on onto the heroine, not necessarily with her full consent. So the earliest romances that you would recognize as romance fiction, a lot of them were historical and they involved a whole lot of uh, adventures and history and characters ancillary to major historical events. Um, One of my writers, Redheaded Girl, tends to call some books published at that time fucking through history. Basically, a lot of history happened and then there were two characters, maybe one character and her several successive husbands. Or maybe she's a pirate and she meets a lot of other guys. Whatever it is, there's going to be a lot of banging through history. Part of that is, well, sex gets people's attention and sex sells. This is not news. The reason why I believe there is a lot of dubious consent or unfortunately rape in early, early romances is part of what I said earlier. Um, It was unacceptable for a woman at that time in the perspective of the readers of those books, for her to own her own sexuality and pursue someone physically. That knowledge had to be brought upon her. And we still function with that gender double standard. Men are allowed to have sexual knowledge. Women are supposed to remain pure. Girls are supposed to remain unaware of sexuality until the appropriate time. But nobody can fully explain what the appropriate time is. Um, I am a parent of two boys who are 12 and 10. And something that I've spoken to other parents a lot is, how do you talk to your children about sexuality? Um, I learned about sexuality through romance fiction because no one talked to me about it. And when I was in elementary school, we didn't have a sexual education curriculum. Now my fifth grader is just starting human health and sexuality. And and there was like a special meeting about it. And the teacher wanted to meet with parents who had concerns. Um, We still don't have language to talk about sexuality, particularly as it pertains to women owning their own agency, owning their own bodies, and owning the ability to decide what is and isn't consent. Even consent is a difficult topic still. So it's not as if old school romances are archives of a sexual past that no longer exists. Those Those standards that created those narratives still very much exist. However, that doesn't change the fact that when you go back to read those classic romances, it can be really hard to read those scenes um, because they're they're terrifying sometimes. They're very violent to a contemporary reader who has grown up reading different narratives of romance. Going back to a romance from the 70s is quite a cultural shock. I understand why they are the way they are. Um, And it's, it's a surprisingly complex discussion when a character summarizes it as rape and adverbs, well, there's a lot, a lot of reasons for both of those things. Um, actually, I'm curious about the adverbs, but I'll, I'll get to that in, to that in a second. Um, <laughs> obviously, the the genre has changed, and when I was at the RT convention eight years ago, paranormal romance was very popular, and one reason oh, yes. it was is that it allowed. You know, in a historical Regency romance or whatever, the sexual mores of society are going to be different than in a paranormal universe where, you know, where panthers mate for life or uh, a planet where it's mostly populated by men. Um, and so it, it seems like uh, 
genres, I mean, there were, there were straight up more realistic modern day uh, romance novels that sort of acknowledge women's sexual agency and have them be mm-hmm. more sexually active. Oftentimes I found that these women were not sexually satisfied, um, which allowed the heroic, uh, what is it, the uh, the Wang of Mighty right. Loving, which we'll get heroic to. Heroic Wang of Mighty Loving. <laughs> that, that could, that could, this could be the time to open the door to that. Um, but really, uh, it seems like even in the more recent romance novels, the, the men are still very forceful and arrogant and cruel and they're not as rapey but there's not a lot of conversations about consent that that at least the novels i read eight years ago it was all about visceral visceral attraction and sort of unhinged desire um and so in a in a me too moment are 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 these novels moving in a more in a direction that would involve discussions of consent or is that just not something that is that happens in romance novels is that is that is that visceral desire too much a part of the genre oh absolutely not the conversation about consent and what it is in romance has been happening for decades absolute decades it is not at all going to be a response to the idea that women are being more vocal about having experienced harassment and having experienced assault Writers of romance who are mostly women and people who identify as women have always integrated and looked at how consent happens in romances. So 10 years ago, when you were at RT, you said paranormal was still popular. So that's 2010. And the thing about the paranormal romance genre is that paranormal romance was a way to examine rage and otherness. Um, And it was also a way for women to own rage. When you had women who were shifters who would turn into a wild, violent animal who would kill you, uh, that's quite alluring to women who are told at all times, box up your negative feelings, you're not allowed to show them. Consent is always present in a romance novel in a number of different ways, and it depends on the subgenre also. One really good example of the way in which consent has been part of the genre is uh, if you hearken back to the days of Fifty Shades of Grey, when that book was everywhere, around the same time, I believe, one of the problems with Fifty Shades of Grey, and, and for me there are several, is that there is a complete lack of adequate informed consent when these two characters begin a dominant submissive relationship. And in the actual portrayal of real and accurate BDSM, consent is everything. Nothing happens without a full explanation and consent. And if you read BDSM romances that explore kink in a very detailed way, you'll see consent performed over and over and over again because nothing of that world happens without both people agreeing. And even though the dominant is the person who is performing everything, nothing happens without everyone's consent. No one can do things to you without your consent in that particular world if you're doing it right and safely. And anyone who practices kink will tell you that it is always safe and it is always consensual. So we have a genre specifically looking at BDSM romance that has always dealt very frankly with consent. And that conversation happened around Fifty Shades of Grey when it became a big phenomenon. So for me, looking back 13 years, Yes, the conversation of how much sexual harassment has affected every single woman who is breathing today is going to affect the way in which a genre that is about women is written. However, it is not suddenly a thing that we're looking at. Consent has always been something we deal with. You did bring up uh, the the terrifying, fearsome, lust-driven hero. There's a number of different types of heroes. The alpha hero is very popular. But the way in which alpha is defined varies per writer and varies per reader. So if you ask 10 readers what's an alpha hero, you're going to get a lot of different answers. Because the way in which we are instructed and taught what male dominance is has a lot of different nuances. There's also heroic types such as the beta hero, who is not necessarily weak, but also doesn't need everyone to know that he's the boss. Most of the time he's sneaking around in the background getting things done. There's also the rogue hero, or sometimes called the gamma hero. There are heroes that hide during the story and you don't realize they're the hero until the end. There's a couple books like that that are wonderful. So you may have this common uh, idea that there's only the alpha hero and he's big and mean and driven by his own lust and unable to control himself. That guy is still around. He's not my favorite kind of hero, but there are 
always, always elements of consent around him. It also depends on the reader perspective, because if the reader is reading this book and knows that there's going to be a courtship and knows that there's going to be some sort of sexuality, the reader has already signed on. Robin Harders from Dear Author put it as the, the reader consents for the characters. And whether or not that consent is given by the reader determines whether or not the consent in the book works for them. If I read a book and I say, okay, I think that was assault, and someone else reads the same book and says, no, I don't see it, there's no argument that makes one or the other of us completely right because the experience of the reader also influences the outcome of the book and the book's success as a romance. Interesting. You know, I'm wondering, I guess when I, I, I think I read 15 romance novels before I went to the convention back in 2010. Nice. Um, and I don't know if it was what was recommended to me, or but I think all of the heroes were very alpha. They were, they were broad-shouldered and narrow-waisted. Yep. Um, yep. So he was I, pretty popular then. Yeah. And so I'm curious to know how it's come, because like there was no, in nothing that I read or even heard about it, there was no hero who would like make a cup of tea for the heroine. You know, like uh, a, 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 a bearded, a bearded hero with with a with a dad bod who works as a kindergarten teacher, sitting down and talking about consent and boundaries for fifteen minutes before a sexual scene happens. In what I read eight years ago, and not all the books I read were from twenty ten; some of them were much mm -hmm. earlier. Um, it yep. was it was very forceful and and visceral, and the men were very powerful, and they had a lot of social status. And if they didn't, it, by the end, it turns out that they were wealthy heirs or or something like that. So. <laughs> Surprise! I, you're a prince. I, exactly, exactly. So I was at least back in 2010. I was left with the impression that it was very alpha dominated in the hero yep. sense, and that I guess there was consent. Again, like I sort of, I was sort of looking at the male characters, and and maybe there were kinds of consent going on in all of these books uh, from the female characters, but it just seems like it was all women reacting to a very forceful man instead of having. A more politically correct, for lack of a better word, that's a horrible phrase, conversation about consent. And so are there more nuanced heroes now? Um, or is I it still pretty so. alpha-ish? You know, it really depends on what you're looking for. One of the things that's changed between 2010 and now is that there's a lot more books being published. Uh, in 2010, we hadn't seen the full proliferation of independent and self-publishing. And there weren't as many small presses that were serving niche markets, for example, making romance more inclusive for gay, lesbian, bi and transgender characters or giving readers who were looking for something other than alpha vampires something to read. It, you know, 2010, there wasn't as much available. So now you have not only do you have more options to read, but you have self-publishing, which allows a, an author of romance who wants to write a specific character the option to do it. And it also allows readers to say, oh, wow, I am really looking for a bearded kindergarten teacher romance hero who's gentle and, and just generally kind. Like, where is that guy? I could totally hook you up with like five of those. No problem. Um, the, the more options there are, for readers to find what they want, the better the genre is. In 2010, romance was very, very heavily slanted towards paranormal and urban fantasy. And that genre does indeed create a lot of alpha males. They also had characters that were not, they were fewer and far between. Nowadays, there's like several hundred romances published every day, not an exaggeration, because self-publishing and technological advances in publishing were very much adopted by women, by romance readers, and by romance authors. Romance authors are relentlessly ahead of the curve in terms of publishing technology on a multitude of fronts. So you have this opportunity uh, for readers to say, I am looking for this book. This is the kind of character I want to read. And for a author who is directly connected to readers through newsletters, uh, through group conversations online, through social media to say, oh, I have that guy right here. Hang on just a second. Here he is for you. Whereas in 2010, those channels were not as available. So there probably were more beta heroes and more gentle heroes than you discovered. They were just not as easy to find. I think one thing too. Actually, 2010 was a super interesting moment because it was when it really was ebooks were exploding, and like 
when Fifty Shades of Grey came out, I was not surprised at all because it's completely in tune with what I found at the conference. And I think one reason, one influence is that sort of the, the, the Virgils to my Dante in the Inferno of RTCon 2010 were paranormal erotic romance novels, novelists. Yep. And so they were informing a lot of my reporting. Um, but it seemed like th- at that moment, suddenly you could buy an ebook, skip the man titty, you could read it on the subway, it could be Dostoevsky or the Bible, um, and so suddenly um, there was an ex- there was a surge in, and uh, you can riff on any of these things that I mentioned, but there was the par- very sexualized paranormal romance. Um, there was also MMF, uh, which I'll let you explain. It was very yeah. popular at the time. Uh, and, and basically it sounds like there was, 2010 was almost like a turning point where you used to have like the, the, the paunchy produce manager or whatever at Kroger is deciding which man titty books are going to be in the store. Then suddenly there was a surge in more erotic romance and, and sort of weird yep. erotic romance around 2010. It sounds like maybe the, the more the readers are sort of dictating things, the more that, like 15,000 word ebooks that sell for 99 cents on certain publishers are being made available that maybe the audiences can just sort of follow their own their own interests. Um so feel free to comment on any of that but but do describe, you know, MMF and some of these other erotic genres that were popular and maybe they still are, but were popular when I was there. Absolutely. Okay, first of all, if you want weird, we've got plenty of weird. We can we've got a lot of weird. Uh, Amish vampires in space, we've got that. I have a review for it. It's on my site. You you literally um, have Amish vampires in space? Yeah, it's a book. I think it's a series. Okay. Oh yeah, absolutely. Right. Dinosaur shifters, uh where bears. There's a new series by a writer who I adore named Shelley Lawrenston and it's three sisters who are all or part honey ba- honey badger shifters. And if you know about the viral video about honey badgers, you know how they don't give a shit. And these ladies, they don't give a shit. Before I get into the very specifics of erotic romance and MMF, I want to point out first that one of the things that romance is doing is that it is centering women's sexuality from a female gaze. And that is incredibly deeply important because most other portrayals of women's sexuality, of female bodies, of anything erotic or prurient is constructed through male gaze. It's what turns on a dude. And for romance, these are books written by women, about women, and for women. Also, if you look at the publishing industry, they're largely produced by women. This is a story about female sexuality through a female gaze, through a female character, placing her at the center. So inside erotic romance, you have the incredible power of discovering different sexualities, uh, different practices, different ideas in the privacy of your own imagination. And with ebooks, the ability to read in peace without anyone telling you what they think of what you're reading. And every romance reader has experienced someone shaming them for what they read, whether it was a bookstore employee or a librarian or some rando on the subway with no sense of self-preservation. Uh, women's experiences are always open to the commentary of other people especially when it's about emotions and sex because those are very controlled for for women through outside experiences this is why the handmaid's handmaid's tale will scare the crap out of you no matter when you read it because it's very close to painful realities for many people within erotic romance You can explore so many different ideas within the privacy of your own imagination with the understanding that everyone will be happy and safe in the end if they're the primary characters. So you can explore MMF, which is male, male, female, menage. There's menage with multiple partners. There's male, male romance. There's also lesbian romance. There's romance featuring transgender, bisexual characters. There are now more romances that feature characters who identify as asexual or demisexual. In terms of the idea of sexuality being one thing, it's easy to spot the most popular portrayals of sexuality and romance because they're the ones that'll sell the most. You'll see them in the top 10 lists in various different places. The thing about romance now that is almost constant is how fast it changes. Tropes change, characters change, the popular ideas change. Right now, we're in the middle of a big royal romance, royal wedding trend. I cannot imagine why that is. That imagine will change. the coincidence. Right? We are very responsive population. Uh, the, the more that things happen in the world around us, the more we react to them. Um, one of my writers, Amanda, has been sharing with me an essay she's working on about how it used to be very easy 
for her to just overlook the image of a guy, a white guy with a gun on the cover of a romance novel, uh, if it was a romantic suspense or a military romance. And because of the proliferation of gun violence, she's really uncomfortable with that image and it's affecting her ability to enjoy those books. And she's sort of grappling with why her own personal experience has changed how she sees romances. That happens for every reader. We grow through and with the books that we read. The idea that there's one way for a hero to be or one way for a heroine to be is something that the romance genre is fighting actively because the romance genre, as much as I adore it, it has some flaws. And one of those flaws is that it, most of the books are very white, very straight, very cisgendered and very Christian, but a very odd denominationless form of Christianity. They're not Catholic. They're not Baptist, but they go to the Universalist Church of Romance where you celebrate Christmas. And that leaves out so many people. It also, when you have a very straight or cisgendered uh, heterosexual portrayal of sexuality, it leaves out a lot of people. What romance is delivering and delivering, I would like to say, in better and better and more inclusive ways is the image of happiness. So if you look at movies right now, you have Black Panther telling an enormous number of people of color, you are the hero, you are the superhero, you are the badass scientist, you are the hero of this story. Then you have A Wrinkle in Time telling young girls and young girls of color, you are the hero. And even if you are difficult, you are deserving of love and you are the one who's going to save the universe. And you have a movie like Love, Simon, which is based on a book called Simon and the Homo Sapiens Agenda that is saying to young queer people, yes, your love story is important and you will see yourself as the hero on the screen experiencing a love story with a happy ending. Romance is doing the same thing to many, many different people. And I always argue that it needs to do more. It needs to be more inclusive. It needs to move move faster already. But as, as fast as change happens, it never happens fast enough for the people who want it. We're all very demanding. You're talking about readers getting what they want. My listeners probably are due to find out what the heroic wang of Mighty Loving is and the magic hoo-ha. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I dangled that a long time ago. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> pun intended. Uh, so let's go back to this content and, and sort of this energy that happens, this sexual energy that happens between protagonists in a romance novel. Uh, and then maybe we can talk a little bit about how, how these books um, serve their readers. But tell since, since you created these very colorful phrases, tell us about those two phrases. Alas, I did not create them. They were, I think they are fandom created. I tried to trace the uh, birth of both terms, no pun intended, and could not find a single source that identified who it was. But it is a very common fandom language in romance to describe the magic hoo-ha and the the wang of mighty lovin'. Uh, The Wang of Mighty Lovin' is, as you might imagine, the male genital appendage. And that, as a as a function of character and plot can be very, very funny. When you are describing desire from an internal perspective for a writer, it can be very difficult to describe the way in which you recognize your own desire. Like, how do you know you're desiring of something sexual? It's it, And so the Wang of Mighty Lovin' becomes quite the shortcut and shorthand <laughs> for describing sexual interest. The other thing that the Wang of Mighty Lovin' has done in the past in many other, many, many romance novels, of the, especially of the old school variety, is that though the heroine might have thought that she had sexual satisfaction, there is no greater satis- sexual satisfaction than the hero and his mighty Wang of Lovin'. His orgasms are the bestest orgasms that have ever been orgasmed ever. And there's a there's an emphasis on singularity in the romance world, which I and other readers are always curious about. There's this emphasis on there. It's like Highlander. There can only be one. There can only be one best orgasm you've ever had in your entire life. And the Wang of Mighty Lovin' is the one that is going to bring you that orgasm. I do not think that there is an equivalent for uh, women to have the Wang of Mighty Lovin'. I've never encountered it. However, I am hopeful that... The idea of <laughs> singular superpowered orgasms will visit everybody so everyone can have good ones. <laughs> I also don't necessarily think that, that, that this, the emphasis on singularity, that there can only be one, is necessarily healthy because that's certainly not true in many human experiences, that they only have one love, they only have one perfect sexual partner. Uh, we're, we're a bit more interesting than that, us humans. Now, the magic hoo-ha is the uh, female equivalent of the ma- wang of mighty lovin'. And the magic hoo-ha especially in classic or old school romances, um, 
I think in the book we put it as, lo, though the hero, the hero may visit upon many a dairy maid after the magic hoo-ha, he will not be satisfied with any other but hers. It's an emphasis of singularity and also the idea that uh, once he has experienced the heroine, the hero is no longer interested in any other woman. She is it for him. And this now, is peg- a this lot. Is- this, a lot. This is pegged to a very specific idea that a lot of heroes are very highly sexed at the beginning. Oh. Like these, there's very few virginal heroes. They usually <laughs> plow their way through women and then Literally. the heroine has something special. Yes. Now, there are more and more uh, virgin heroes and there are more and more heroes who have very limited sexual experience. And I love that because it undermines a very damaging uh concept for men that men are expected expected to be sexually fluent and able to do all the things instinctively that's a terrible expectation to put on a person um so yes it harkens well, back to a- the idea actually are there are there any scenes sorry to, sorry to interrupt but i'm curious yeah. because this they didn't seem to exist eight years ago are there any scenes where the like the hero has erectile dysfunction and they talk for 10 minutes before he can get his wood back or is that oh no? absolutely are absolutely there there's absolutely there are portrayals of erectile dysfunction there are portrayals of heroes who are asexual and are really not interested in sexual relations at all um there are heroes who have any number of challenges the facing sexuality heroines too that's becoming more more common oh, now it's time for the dog to bark i am now a complete podcaster I apologize profusely. We, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we'll have pictures of Sarah's dogs and cats in the show no notes. No, God. <laughs> <laughs> I got a lot of mammals in my house. It's a lot of fun. So with the hero and heroine sexual experience, absolutely. There's also a lot more romances um, featuring characters who are older, who are empty nesters, or who are widows and widowers, and they're re-experiencing romance. There's the more options that authors have to publish the stories that speak to them, and the more readers have the opportunity to find romances that are very specifically attuned to what they want, the more inclusive and expansive the genre gets. And really, romance is just keeping pace with other industries. If you think about it, uh, we are entering a very bespoke, custom-tailored form of consumerism right now. You get the box of beauty products that are explicit and perfectly attuned to your skin type. You get the movies and television shows based on your interests. You get mail and uh, offers based on your purchases, your algorithm, the way in which you operate through the world results in a lot of custom marketing directed at your interests and your behaviors. And sometimes even creepy ways like um, you maybe an app is listening to you and shows you an ad for something you were just talking about that's happened to me. And it's been very freaky. So based upon your deep experience now, how do you see people enjoying the genre? And why do they seek out these romance novels when they could be reading the grapes of grapes of wrath or watching the latest news? Well, uh, those latter two are depressing as hell. Um, The first thing that's important to know about romance readers is that for very, very many of us, uh, romance is a literary inheritance from women in our lives. Uh, An older relative or friend or babysitter either gives you your first romance or you learn about it from a friend or you sneak the book out from your grandmother's collection when no one was looking. Either we were given or we snuck in, but this is the thing that we inherit most often from women in our worlds. And I I swear to you, like 80% of all the women I interviewed at the convention eight years ago 80 percent. it was all their grandmother yep grandmother aunt babysitter sister uh best friend i was introduced to romance by a a woman uh, when we were i want to say we were seniors in high school maybe late juniors in high school but yeah it was somebody i knew from school who was reading a romance and i asked what she was reading and she was like oh my god you've never read this get over here and showed me the whole spiral rack in the library of all the books she'd read you know we are introduced to the genre by other women most often The thing about romance is that it promises you happiness. And there's a really wonderful uh, interview with Fran Leibovitz in the New York Times style section uh, a while, while back that was cited in my, my friend Vera Tobin's book, The Elements of Surprise, which is all about how a book surprises you when you least expect it. And the Leibovitz interview, it includes a quote that she reads a lot of uh, mysteries. And she was saying in this interview, I don't actually care who did it. And I'm never going to remember who it was. And I'll read them again and be like, oh, yeah, it was that guy. But it's going to end. 
and it's going to end with a solution and it's going to end with everything being at least mostly restored to order. Life is not like that. The same is true of romance. There is a lot of pain and misery and frustrating things. And especially now people walk around with a great deal of anxiety and worry and fear. And it is incredibly wonderful to be handed a book where you know that no matter how bad things get in the story, it will be okay. You know that everything will be okay in the end. And if it's not okay, well, then it's not the end yet. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including my cameo in the romance novel Prowl the Night, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Music is by Cedar Van Tassel. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Thank you.